Hey, welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. This is Matt Monero. I want to give you just a little intro on today's episode. Today I had Rob Jollis, and um, Rob and I share the same publisher in Penguin. His new book is called Why People Don't Believe You. He's a hardcore sales guy just like me. And, um, you know, our audience loves sales strategies to make more money. It's the whole purpose of it. How do we help you make more money? And uh, apparently teaching you good proven sales strategies to get better at the craft of selling, the art form of selling is important to you. So I brought Rob on the, on the show today. If you're really into selling strategy and being able to make more money, I want you to make sure that, listen to the whole episode, but the second half is where we really begin to dig into different types of mindset and the importance of slowing the sales process down, caring about the damn customer before just throwing up on the customer with your product offering. That's what makes the customers not believe you. And we really get into it in the second half of this one. So I appreciate everybody. I'll see you down the road. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the You Need More Money podcast. I'm your host, Matt Monero, where I come to you each and every week from my studio in Dallas, Texas. My job with the podcast is to bring the audience people that you may not be able to get to on your own. I work hard to find unique people that have messages that I believe are very valuable to the audience because the number one most wanted and listened to topic on our podcast is sales strategies. In other words, our audience wants to learn how to sell to make more money, which obviously connects to the book, You Need More Money. Today's guest might be one of the quintessential minds in selling. And I want to introduce him to you. His name is Rob Jollis. Rob is the author of the new book, although he has many bestsellers and many books, but the new book, Why People Don't Believe You, just came out in October. And I believe as I've gotten to know Rob through the uh, YouTube uh, and videos and watching a lot of stuff, uh, Rob, I, I uh, prepare very deeply for these podcasts. Like, I, No kidding, I probably watch six hours uh, worth of your content wow. just in preparation for this. Um, Rob and I share the same publisher in Penguin, and his beliefs are very uh, much in line with mine when it comes to selling because I think the two of us started from nothing and carried the bag and did everything that our maybe a good boss told us. We certainly did everything a lousy boss told us. And then we began to figure out our own strategy. So welcome to the podcast, Rob Jollis. Happy to have you. Pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm excited to talk about this because I, I don't get to talk to, to another old school guy like me. So uh, we're going to have a good time. Let's go. <laughs> So look, I don't want to uh, get into the old cliche question, so I'm not even going to ask it because you've heard it a thousand times, but I do want to start with this question. Is selling hard? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, I think we make it harder than it is, and I think we make it harder than it is because we uh, overdose on product knowledge. Uh, so we're studying, studying, studying the product, which is basically going to shoot ourselves in the foot because... I know we don't want to talk about questions, but please remember there's instinct and there's logic. Uh, logically, we were to ask a lot of questions. Instinctively, we don't. And one of the reasons is we're so uh, pounded on with product knowledge. Look, even continuing education still struggles with the fact that, what, that, that continuing education can be anything but 
more product knowledge. Mm -hmm. So when we do, when we're basically taught to fail, and we won't shut up about our product, when we're um, when we're then introduced to mentors who have never been formally trained as mentors, they're just people who've carried the bag a long time. <laughs> Sometimes you know, the worst possible style, and we're not really uh, in touch with our style. So now we're doing somebody else's style poorly. Uh, we got so much product knowledge that we're just belching information. And to answer your question, that sure makes selling hard, doesn't it? Yeah, I got it. And so let, let me ask you this, because you said that, um, you know, we were taught the, the wrong stuff. And I know how you feel about the old days. And you make this wonderful joke on one of your YouTube videos about, um, uh, you know, two a day, five a week equals 10, right? And, and how that's exactly how we were all trained. By the way, I still do some of that in my office today, right? Look, here's how the math plays out. You know, it's so much easier than you think. I mean, come on, how come you can't find two a day? And can you imagine if you did two a day, what five a week, what 20 a month would look like for you? My God, your life would change, right? It's just a numbers game. And in your new book, Why People Don't Believe You, your stance is it's so much more than just a numbers game. It's changed radically since we, we got into the business for me 25 years ago. I think for you about 30 years ago as a New York life insurance salesman, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, it has changed. And at the same time, I, 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 and again, we'll explain why I'm talking about a little old school. It has changed. Technology, technology has changed it. When I sold for New York Life, and I wanted to get a, 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 a readout on your policy, I'd have it in three days, mm -hmm. uh, you mm -hmm. know, because I had to send up to the home office to get this printout. Things were a, a lot slower then. Yeah. But I, I will tell you that one thing, the reason why I say let's not completely divorce ourselves from, from the old days, because I wrote a piece once called book and a pad of paper. And as an insurance agent, uh, I watched the, the grizzled guys. They, they okay. They, they they fought the computer a little bit, uh, but they went out there with a pad of paper and a rate book, which meant it was going to be a conversation. They weren't going to bury you in numbers. They weren't going to bury you in in, in in all that information. They were going to get to know you. And and when it when the time came, they break out the rate book. We lost a lot of that, and maybe technology did that. I'm not anti-technology. It sure helps not having to wait three days for. Uh, uh, policy information, but my goodness, um, I really think that um, some of these very basic skills, if we just, I promise I won't say anymore, but if we just ask questions and listen, if people are listening to this, discipline themselves, they're better off. You said you, you got a kick out of that two and five and 10. Don't get me wrong. I'm a very disciplined individual. My problem was that's all they were teaching me. Two, five, ten. Uh, what about, you know, what about how to dig deeper into a customer's concern? Decision cycles they may go through. Where their decision points are. How to handle price objections. No, no, I had two, five, ten, and and so alone that wasn't good enough. But I'm not throwing it out. Yeah, I, I do think we need that discipline. Well, it's true. I mean, uh, you know, it, it sales in a capacity is a numbers game. The downside, though, is for you and I. You know, you, you the you know, for, for your call, you started, I guarantee you, calling off lists and family and friends. I, I literally started calling out of the yellow pages, right? right. And, and I would go to trucking in the yellow pages in Oklahoma City because I just got done seeing a client in the, and I stayed at the Motel 6 and I stole the yellow pages. And guess what? I had a whole new list of Oklahoma City, uh, you know, trucking company leads, right? 
And, and that's literally how my, my lead list uh, creation came from. But the number system does work. But the downside is what I did for all these years was I just pushed with such force hundreds and hundreds of calls to find those two. And I think where it has morphed is through using technology and through a few other things that we have to unpack today, it doesn't have to be 100 equals 2. No, it could be no, no. 40 equals 2. It could be 30 equals 2. Sure. And remember something. Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes we, we still make to this day is when we're not intelligently taught how to prospect, we all fall back on cold calling. And my dad said one time, and I, I still remember this, he said, you know, cold calling is a little like shaving. You do a little bit each day. And, uh, which, you know, I don't know about 100 calls, but, but hey, I'm on this side of town. I might just park and, and go walk into that little strip mall there. Uh, so, but the problem is that and what else? And that's mm -hmm. where technology, that's where so much goes on, but still going to a network meeting, still learning how to open up a conversation with someone you don't know. Uh, but let's not heavy up on any of them. Let's be as diverse as possible. And that creates a much more intelligent form of prospecting. You know, you say something very interesting. You, you say that people feel as though they are selling when they're talking. And the reality is we sell when we ask great questions and then we shut up and listen. So can you walk us through that process a little bit more? Because I think the reason that doesn't happen more is this tremendous pressure to produce quickly. Right. And also, um, I need the sale. I can't live on the base salary that the company is providing me, and I have to close to be able to make up the gap. Maybe not the case at a large insurance company where they would have paid a living wage, but a lot of companies to their sales force pay just enough to get the guy to sign on and everything else has to be made up on commission or bonus. And that's a pretty tough existence for a guy to slow it down and ask wonderful questions, care, and then listen for the answers. And one more thing I'll throw on top, yeah, I'll get into that. Uh, but please understand that people fail to realize that Although you and I are slowing down and asking the questions, we actually will get to the finish line faster that way, not slower. We're just not coming out of the box and hammering them with a solution uh, to fix a problem that they consider very mild. Mm. Uh, no wonder there's a price objection. No wonder there's a lack of urgency. <laughs> Congratulations, you got your product on the table a lot faster than we did. The problem is you're battling two months of objections. We're methodically creating trust. We're taking that trust and earning the right to not only hear about that one problem, but find one they didn't even know they had. And we're going deeper into that problem. When we do that, we create urgency. Isn't the solution a lot easier? Go. So let's just stay stay on that, if you don't mind, with it with it with a real life example. Because what you know, what you just said for the last thirty seconds. I'm sorry for trying to interrupt you. I was so excited to say, "Tell me more. Tell me more." But I'd love to try to paint that real picture so people really understand that the solution solution of your presentation is not the solution that the customer cares about. Right, right. And actually, I, I, some web guys actually get it right. We can learn from them. Why do some sites get more hits than others? It's not that they're showing the solution. I can tell you statistically, 7% of the population is walking around going, boy, I need this and I got to go find it. 
and 79% of the population saying, I don't need a thing, but you know what? You asked for an example, so I'm looking around, I'm, I'm sitting outside, so I'm sitting on lawn furniture. Let's just talk about that. You know, this chair is a little uncomfortable, but so far I haven't pulled anything. So in other words, it's a small problem. As soon as I pull something, I'm gonna go fix that thing and get smart again. Well, uh, why would I show you a beautiful lawn furniture, piece of lawn furniture? Maybe I ought to show you somebody who's not sleeping real well at night. So, so you see, I want to earn the right. I can't walk in and go, hi, are you sleeping badly? So I have to earn the right to get at the problem. All right. And that means just tell me about the outside. Tell me about how often you sit out there. And, mm. and what do you sit on, by the way? And then when I hear occasionally, it gives me a little thing in the back. But you know what? I just shift a little and I'm okay again. I go, well, what happened you? <laughs> you asked for an example. Uh, so, but, but it's going deeper into the problem. Let's not just say we're consultants. Let's act like one. Hmm. And a real consultant does not take, oh, so you have a mild idea of the problem? Well, I wouldn't want to ask any more questions about that. A good consultant says, well, my job is to ask you questions no one's ever asked you about that daggone chair of yours. So let's stay here for a moment. How often does it happen? When you, you, when you can't sleep, how does that affect your day the next day? In terms of your thinking and ability to connect with your customers, what impact is that having? And when we don't have to wait for the problem to become large, we can just talk about it. Mm. You know what, we, what I learned as an insurance agent? Selling's not what is, it's what if. See. No one ever called, uh, well, two people in a couple of years called me looking for insurance. First one was very exciting. The second one, I actually said, what did the doctor tell you? <laughs> <laughs> because nobody, you see, they're waiting. It's not mean, it's merciful yeah. to ask questions that might make somebody feel a little uncomfortable. They will thank you for those questions because we want that fixed before it becomes big. We do that. We're representing the greatest career and the greatest thing that we can do for people is to help them get out of their own way and solve these problems before they come big. There's a process there and we have to do a better job at it. I think on the lawn, uh, lawn furniture thing, I might also say to the, uh, to the prospect, I might say something like, um, uh, what, what does your wife think about the furniture? How does she? Um, yeah, she doesn't like it either. Well, why is it like um, you don't have a lot of friends over? You guys don't entertain, and if you do, you never take them out to the patio because of the lawn furniture. See, we could fix that right now. We could fix right. that problem right yeah. now. Yeah, right. The key is, let's talk about the problem with the lawn furniture. Let's stop running off to fix things so fast. Mm. Uh, you know, remember Billy Mays, the the the, the pitch. Oh yeah, of course. Oxy yeah, clean and oxy clean. Yeah. yeah. I'm not Billy Mays, okay? I'm Rob Jollis. So I'm not running off going, Rob Jollis here for lawn furniture. <laughs> to help study the backyard with you and make sure whatever we do is intelligent. Mm. And, and people say, well, gee, how do we get around price? How do we, you want to get around price? You have to understand that people don't fix small problems. They fix big ones. So yeah. we can wait for it. Or we can have a conversation about it. That's what you and I are talking about right now. I get what you're saying. You're saying that the solute the the roadmap to the solution becomes faster when through our questioning process we're really figuring out what the big problem that our solution solves is and instead of instead of throwing up on the table with our pricing and the guy's like yeah i'll think about it and then he never calls you back and you've called him 10 times and you went back to your boss and said oh i got this hot lead boss this was this one's going to go this month right and and there's nothing to it so but but i i'd like to ask your opinion rob on the how do I care 
when I need the sale. I can't wait for it to come. I can't slow it down. I'm under such financial pressure to close. That's a real problem, I think. It is, and I don't really have a great answer for you on that one. And, I'm, and, and one thing you'll get whenever we talk, I'm gonna tell you where I am and, and what I'm thinking. That's a very difficult question. I actually wrote an article, barely get pushback from the sales world. They pushed back a little on this one because I wrote an article about that I'm starting to question even the nature of sales contests because uh, nobody wakes up and says, today, you know what, I feel a little unethical today. Yeah, that's it. I'm going to feel just a little. We all justify it's, it's not a good thing, but, but um, you know, there's a lot of gray area. I remember when I was 21 years old, a, it was called a state, what was it? It was a steak and beans contest. 24 <laughs> apprentice field underwriters, 12 of them. Uh, the top 12 would eat steak at the boss's house. Significant others uh, were required to be there. Yeah. And the bottom 12 with their required significant others were gonna serve that steak, eat beans standing up in the kitchen. Now, it gets to your question. When I'm one or two sales away and uh, of being humiliated, now you're talking about financial concerns as well. It's the same category. Uh, that gray area gets even grayer, doesn't it? When I say, you know what, I, I, maybe it's a cruise I'm trying to win and I'm one sale away. Mm. Maybe it is a mortgage I'm trying to pay and I'm one sale away. Uh, it, it, there's a real catch-22 to your question because I'd love to say, well, the answer is, seven and then you just add the four to it there isn't an easy answer to it one answer is we have to be careful with our sales contests we really do uh, and two the answer to you is hopefully we realize remember zig ziglar of course dallas based okay. zig ziglar i you know uh, i used to love his, his his tape prime the pump yeah that was a great one right which is the concept being that because we get on top, because we're starting to work, because we got water coming out of that pump, is not the time to stop pumping that well. We keep pumping, we keep pumping. Uh, I, I, because no matter who you are, sales is a career of peaks and valleys, and peaks and valleys. And the only way to, to help that is to really pay attention that when we're going through a peak, have a financial advisor, you know, I'm running a business now for 25 years. Not all 25 years were, were for sure. terrific. Yeah, for but sure. But I have a financial advisor. I have a plan, <clears throat> and I work at a very level pace uh, to take care of the peaks and valleys. So I think it's more planning and keep keep that pump moving even when you're on top because I promise you, <laughs> nobody stays there. I don't care how talented you are. I That's do. Well, there's one guy, there's one guy that I learned about from you, and I want to ask you about him in just a second. But I do think just uh, to, to kind of close the circle on this topic, especially for the entrepreneurs who are listening, it, that question that you and I are talking about is vital to be determined. Because when you get it wrong, let me rephrase, to solve, you, you must pay up. You have to pay your people a living wage in order for them to, if you choose to sell your product in this methodology, which I agree with completely, you have to pay your people a living wage so that that pressure goes away. The challenge is for the young entrepreneur who's just getting the business going, I can't pay a guy 50, 60, 70 grand base salary and three months down the road he, he doesn't sell a thing and I'm out 
15, $18,000 that I really didn't have in the first place. So guess what? I got to continue to do the sales, which means I can never get working on my business rather than working in my business. It's a real quandary. And I think it, it's one of the primary changes in the entrepreneurial world, Rob, is that businesses have to be far more cerebral uh, in their training, in their hiring methodology, in the filter of who gets past what I call the doorman principle, who gets behind the doorman and into your organization. Because you're going to have to pay up if you're really committed to selling under this type of strategy, because it is a longer pipeline uh, to do it right. Is that fair to say? I think it's very fair to say. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. And and maybe, and you know, I, I wrote about this in the new book a little bit, but maybe we ought to stop using the, the, the ridiculous word soft skills, replace that with the word performance skills, mm -hmm. so that we stop demeaning the, the, the very life and death skills that uh, we seem to uh, just gloss over and really start working on those skills. You know, everybody that I meet with always says, oh, I've been sales trained a dozen times. But once you carve into it, you find that it's rare, actually, that people are even sales trained. They are product trained, as we mentioned earlier. Somebody called it sales training. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so yeah. they're undertrained. Uh, companies are, are undervaluing performance skills. And, uh, I, I, you know, again, I, I think we train people up. Um, we get the right person. And one last real fast thing. I was on a panel a couple weeks ago and somebody asked me, what's the one thing you would really look for in a salesperson? Because we're talking about, let's get the right person in there. And two, uh, two PhDs with me and, you know, the two said, ah, they, 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 they got to go through schooling and this and that. And they came to me and I, I think I disappointed them because I said off the cuff, I think they have to be able to take a punch. Mm. I think I, I, we can teach anybody product. We have to, we, we have, to have somebody who can experience and go through the process of having somebody maybe brutally say not only no but never how you like them apples yeah and yeah it never feels good but we dust ourselves off we step forward as long as we believe in our product and ourselves we just keep putting one foot in front of the other you get that person in there i won't be as concerned about the the monetary structure we create yeah i love that let me ask you about the number one salesperson of all time, the simple greatest salesperson that no one has ever heard of, but you were blessed to be around for a period of time. Will you just go into that storyline for a little bit of Ben Feldman so people can really understand why he was the greatest salesperson you've ever met? Sure. And thank you for asking. Uh, and you're right. No one's really heard of him. He was a New York Life agent. Uh, I was actually a, a, a top tier salesperson. Well, you were the rocket. You, you were the large head. Hold on. Don't don't pass over your nickname, the rocket. They called the you rocket. the rocket. That's right. Oh, I would walk in saying, "There's going to be a rocket attack." <laughs> I, I was. I had a little sign on my door that said, "The rocket is in. The rocket's taking off." Uh, I, so here comes the rocket, and they said, "You know, we want you to meet this guy Ben Feldman," and he was number one in the company and um, I said all right we're gonna have a lunch I remember being a little miffed that I actually had to go to his table he wasn't coming to mine because I did have about 13 months of experience under my belt <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, well, I was quite the big shot so uh, Ben Feldman was number one at New York Life 7800 agents but he was actually number one in the nation that included Peru at 45,000, Met at 42,000, Money at 40,000. We maybe had a couple hundred thousand agents. So you know, he had to be pretty good to be number one. 
Number two sold about $50 million of insurance that year. Number three, 49, 48, 47. Here we go with that pyramid. But Ben Feldman, that year, $152 million. It's just, it sounds like a statistical anomaly, mm. except that he did it years before and years after. Mm. $1.6 in his lifetime. Over a million month of sales that, uh, that extended 16 years at a million a month. Mm. So when I met him, I had this vision of kind of an Alec Baldwin, Glengarry Glenn Ross, <laughs> like, coffee down kind of guy. And... <laughs> and everyone should hear this. Ben Feldman leaves us a lot of legacies. He was a very shy person. He was deathly afraid to speak. He wrote a couple books. They're not even in print. They didn't sell well. But the numbers dictate that he may have been the greatest salesperson who ever lived. Now let me tell you what I saw when I went to that lunch. I went to his table. Uh, I'm, a, I'm not a big guy. I towered over him. And, mm. and I'm 5'10 mm. when I stand nice and straight. <laughs> uh, ben Feldman was about 5'3", five, 5'4". Five, he was a large fellow. We'll leave it at that. He had hair like Larry on the Three Stooges. And he spoke with a pronounced lisp like this. Now, is that what you had in your mind? <laughs> and, and, yet, and yet, by the numbers, you can say what you want. Arguably the greatest salesperson who ever lived. And by the way, he lived in the sprawling metropolis of East Liverpool, Ohio. I hear it's in Ohio. So no, he wasn't on Madison Avenue or in Beverly Hills. This was a grinder. This was a fighter. And this man taught me in 20 seconds without articulating it. Oh my goodness. There's style and there's technique. I got to listen to his technique and then, then believe in my style because his style didn't didn't have one attribute that we associate with a great salesperson and it worked brilliantly which answers the question there is no style that won't work there's us trying to copy a style that isn't ours and that won't work mm. that's the legacy one of the many of ben feldman mm. and so how does a guy pull that off i mean you would think just the sheer numbers that didn't exist there i thought you were going to tell me the guy was from queens or the guy's office was in downtown Manhattan. I mean, you just had to have a population to tap. How does a guy like that pull it off? Is it referrals? Is it is it renewal? I mean, how does a guy do it? Well, and he's like a natural laugh. Don't necessarily make great unconscious confidence. So we all tried to carve into the Ben Feldman story. And um, I, I remember, uh, not from our conversation, because I was too busy thinking whose table we were at, but, but uh, I remember reading in Selling Magazine, Ben Feldman said the most difficult part of the, the sale is the interview, but the most difficult part of the interview are the disturbing questions. By golly, I think that really gives us a clue that says uh, he understood he had to deal with the problem before getting to the need, just like we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. and, and Neil Rackham, who wrote Spin Cell in the late 70s, also British scientist also was the first person scientifically to open that door and say, it really is about the problem, isn't it? One last thing about Ben, he was notoriously a really hard worker. Mm -hmm. he, he was, he, he never left one stone unturned. Yeah, his follow-up must have been incredible. I'm yeah, sure his yeah. follow-up was incredible. I mean, look, it does tap a little bit towards the challenger sale uh, book and methodology, which which is that study of what happened in the Great Recession, where we had, you know, we had the relationship guys who kind of got crushed, and the guys that began to ask the tougher, deeper, bigger problem questions that most salespeople back away from. 
you know, uh, are, are the guys that actually grew during that tough period of time. Do you believe that that deep relationship salesperson uh, wins, or do you believe that if somebody can get to the heart of the matter quickly, professionally, through emotion and empathy, that they have the the better of the of the chances to close more deals today? Well, I, you know, I'm always kind of hoping that one's the same as two. But um, look, I, I, you know, one thing when we look at decision cycles, we realize that kind of broke our heart. But there is something called the satisfied stage, which means a customer is 100% happy with what they're doing and who they're working with. And if that's the case, that's not really a prospect, is it? Right. But I will Good tell call. you this: statistically, and I've been polling it for 16 years. Statistically, that's about four and a half percent of the population. So let's not kid ourselves and think that every other person we see seems to be happy. No, every other person you see, you're jumping at the problem so fast and the solution that they don't want to be sold. So they're not telling you the truth, and they're saying they're 100 percent happy. So uh, let yeah. you know. I think if we really have a true a person who's completely happy with what they're doing and with who they're working with. Wonderful. What a wonderful, I, I, I want to shake their hand. And sometimes shaking that hand gets us a, a, another a referral or two because this is not a prospect. But I caution people when they go, well, that's an interesting talk by this guy, Jollis, but he doesn't know the real estate industry or whatever. I say again, <laughs> you bring up problems too fast and people know exactly where you're going and they will absolutely, their nose will grow like Pinocchio. When they tell you, no, 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 I love my house. It is my business is perfect. So let's you know, let's realize we got 19 out of 20 that are probably at least some form of prospect. Uh, we don't have to dislodge somebody who's working with a salesperson who apparently is doing a great job with a, with a great customer. Yeah, it's good. Good call. I'd like to uh, because I think that actually begins to to, to round out uh, today, bringing it back to the new book, why people don't believe you. The, the premise of why people don't believe you in a selling capacity is what, Rob? Well, uh, it's this. It's that everybody that, that we do, and, I, and I'm guilty of this. So I finally figured out, maybe we shouldn't be teaching scripts so much. Maybe we should understand that product knowledge is not sales training. But I've made a mistake. Uh, it's only a 25-year mistake. You know, we all have our good days. But but nah, I'm 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 getting. There's still time. Uh, There's still time. My, my my point to you is this: we seem to focus a whole lot on the words. You know, um, we work on you know the opening tactic. What's your whiff them? Do you have a process in place? We you know what questions you asking? A lot of words, words, words. And it sort of dawned on me that we're not really paying attention to the tune. Um, and um, meaning, I, you and I, we, we click very well, I think, in this conversation. We're, we're not exactly low-energy guys. But what about those that um, don't quite have the same punch in their voice? In their, in their gut, they're the same person, but, but they just their, their pitch is a little off. It's like music. They're, the sound's a little bit flat. Uh, they, they, they don't pause naturally. Their gestures aren't quite there. And sometimes we look at a person like that and say, well, not sales material. I, we're going to make you an account, Larry. Uh, you know, we, we, we put them in a cubicle somewhere. Uh, you know, what about that? And, and, and even deeper, what I started finding was not just salespeople who are struggling uh, and, and realizing it's not the words that are failing you. It's the way you're saying the words. But anybody who's gone through two or three or four just 
maybe a bad month, maybe three or four bad customers in a row. Think what that does to your shoulders, to your tone, yeah. to your pitch. And we have to repair that. We have to focus on it. So what I tried to do in this book was actually break down, you know, manually how to kind of analyze and focus on what we're saying, uh, uh, how we're saying what we're saying. And it's been a really fun journey with this book because it's uh, it's a little unusual. It, it's uh, if I could sum it up real fast, if you've ever seen the um, FedEx commercial, it's an old one where a guy says they're in a board meeting. And this guy says, well, we could put everything with FedEx, save 10 percent. And you can hear a pin drop. And then the boss starts moving his hands. He says, hey, we could put everything in one area with FedEx. We'll save 10 percent. Everybody says brilliant. Now, they call that the stolen idea. I say there's there's gold in them there are hills. If you if you can go on YouTube and watch it, the stolen idea from FedEx, he's moving his hands. He said, "I did this," and we have to teach our salespeople how to do this, how to get the pitch, the pace, the pause, the tone, even get into character like an actor, and don't just say you're you're empathetic, feel empathy, and that's where this book goes to in terms of acting, improv, and really focusing on sound. Interesting. It's not where I thought you were going with it. So, so your opinion is people don't believe you because you're not pushing out an energy field that makes them change their state and, and, and connect and rise up? Work with me on that. Yeah. Well, a lot of it has to do with sounds, the actual sounds you're making. In other words, hey, Rob, are you a great sales trainer? Yes, I'm the best there is. Uh, well, uh, the words were right, but um, what about, yeah, I am the best there is. Okay, mm. I mean, punch it, Rob, punch it. Yeah. Well, um, my, my argument is, you know, not every salesperson necessarily wakes up with that punch. Can we teach it? But, uh, but I'll give you one fundamental piece, and you're going to laugh when you go, that's it? But, but one of the pieces, and there's plenty more, but one of the pieces I happen to love, and I know it's understated, but I got to say it, is you want to be believed, tell the truth. And, mm -hmm. and that means if you don't 100% believe in yourself, it's a whole lot harder to get people to believe in you. If you don't 100% believe in your product, it is hard. I don't care what the words are. Mm -hmm. It's hard to find that tune. So mm -hmm. it actually starts, the tagline of the book is building credibility from the inside out, meaning you start inside, you get that right. Then we'll start working on the outside, how to get mm. people to stay with you. Mm. You know, it's funny. I consider myself a highly ethical guy. Uh, I think I've left millions of dollars on the table in situations in which I probably could have charged customers higher rates on the loans we finance trucks, right? Um, but through my own ethics, not, not maxing out comp plans or anything, I think I've left millions of dollars on the table, and maybe it's made millions of dollars in the fact that people resonated with that, right? But I'm, I'm in this weight loss uh, deal right now. I, I'm, I'm going to be 50 in February, so I'm doing 50 pounds by my 50th birthday. And I have a whole team, the, the chef, the nutritionist, the trainer, and they're requiring me to keep a journal of every morsel that I put in my, my uh, mouth. And the first two days, it was a hamburger. I just conveniently left off that there were small fries with it, right? I just didn't. Yeah. But two days into it, I began to say to myself, what am I doing? I'm a highly ethical guy. Why am I lying to myself and to the nutritionist and the trainer and the and the chef who are on my team, I'm paying them to be on the team, they've showed me commitment, 
They've done nothing that would make me not trust them that they want the best for me in this process. Who am I hurting? I'm hurting me. And it's been a wild sort of transformation getting back to this element of truth and honesty of you really can't have, Buddha, Buddha says you can't have darkness in one side of your life and light in the other, right? Yeah. And this element of truth in the selling process, I believe, has never been more important than it is today because we are, we are fed this garbage on social media about how quick we can have the jet and how easy it is and all we have to do is, you know, cold call our way to it. I just believe it starts with exactly what you're talking about, was this level of honesty and transparency into the product belief, and can we serve the customer through skill set development? Wow, I, well, I, I should have interviewed you for the book. Uh, you, you really you're taking the words right out of my mouth, and I'm, and I'm so glad you said it, because sometimes I feel like I'm almost disappointing the uh, interviewers I'm, I'm working with, and I go, okay, I'll give you some flashy points if you want in my head, but I'm thinking to myself, you don't know how important what this conversation we're having right now really is. And that, that means if you're struggling with this, uh, you know, find some training. I mean, get it fixed. If your product really isn't doing what it's supposed to do, leave. Get it fixed. Get after it. Or leave and go get the product that you can resonate with. You don't have to stick with it. I mean, just because you got a crappy manager who's trying to lie to you about how great it is, right? And he does, he's not carrying the bag anymore. Leave which is yep. so important, I think people need to understand that. I talk about it in my book that the employee-employer relationship has flipped. I believe the employee has far more control over the employer than it was uh, 10 years ago. The employee is the one that has the control. They have the ability to pick up and go to different places. And uh, I, don't, I don't think a lot of employees really understand it. I actually recommend it in my book. I recommend it in my company. Personal uh, core value number two in our company is personal happiness. We are here because we want to be here. And if, right. that, if that stops to exist, you have every right to talk to us about it. And we're very happy to help you leave with no hard feelings. I want you to like working here. Right. You know? yeah. Now, let's, let's go back so we don't lose all the managers on the phone here. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to remind you of something, that leave is always an option. But you know something? That the good news is often we don't have to leave. What we have to do is we have to get with that company and go, listen, you keep wanting me to go out there and tell my clients that we're at, we, we got everything for everybody. And that's when I'm not telling the truth. We have a niche. Many companies don't even know what their niche is. But, we, but let's assume we can't be everything to everybody. What is our specific niche? Help me to understand it, and then I can believe it. Mm. So a lot of times, it's really kind of reassessing what you have and realizing that you're shooting yourself in the foot and you're weakening your own solution if you're trying to be everything to everybody. So let's figure out really who we are, what we want, what problem we fix, and then we can all tell the truth. If we can't do that, then we may have to leave. I'm but so I'm glad you know. said that. I'm That's so glad you said that. You really put a different perspective on what is the definition of truth. When, when you're asking me to do this gregarious problem, I feel like it's untruthful. But if you put me on the right lane, I can be as truthful as can be. I love that. So, Rob, thank you for um, thank you for going there too, because I I was um, maybe I was being a little bit maybe I was throwing the baby out with the bathwater on that one. You know, we're working together as a team today, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Rob, it was a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to talk to you. I wish you nothing but success with why people don't believe you. Available on Amazon right now. Other bookstores get it anywhere, and I hope to see you down the road, my friend. 
Hey, this was too much fun. We have to do it again. Definitely. I'll see you soon. All right. You Thanks. take care. You got it, buddy. Bye. Bye-bye. That's our episode this week with your host, Matt Monero. Check us out every Friday at 12 p.m. Central as we discuss money, your life, and how you need more money.